If you have a Bible, let's open up to Romans chapter five, six this, tonight. We're going to uh, begin uh, with a re- repeat and reread of some scripture that we looked at last week. And launching from that passage, we'll get into the rest of this chapter. Uh, so Romans 6, we're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 14 uh, to get us started tonight. Uh, the Apostle Paul teaching us about what it means to be in Christ. Uh, the last few messages that we talked about being alive in Him, being made new in Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about what it means to be under grace and uh, how life-changing that new reality should be and and, and can be. So Romans 6, let's look at verse 5 through 14. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. You are under grace. Now, again, I've been building up and selling uh, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 as the greatest uh, parts of the Bible that you can read. Uh, I I will go even farther on a limb to say, and if I say this about another verse, forgive me because I can be hyperbolic at times because all of it's great. But I don't don't think uh, I'll say this about another verse in the Bible because I really believe it about this one. Romans 6.14 might be the most important Bible verse that you can ever memorize and apply as a Christian. Now, there's more important Bible verses if you're not a Christian, but if you are a Christian, if you are saved, this side of your salvation, Romans 6.14 might be the most important Bible verse you ever commit to memory. Uh, again, this side of your salvation. Now, maybe you haven't memorized it, but you should. And I think it's pretty simple. I think you can, and maybe we'll work on that in a little bit Uh, because it's powerful. And the thing that makes it most powerful, it's an entry point into what it looks like to realize and tap into the full potential of your salvation. Uh, We've spent several weeks now unpacking Romans 5 and Romans 6. And tonight, uh, we're gonna continue what has been a theologically rich and a practically transformative series of conversations as we've learned about the impact that Christ's death and resurrection has had on all of creation. Uh, We've discovered there's so much on the table for us as believers, uh, more than we may have thought there was. Now, for a lot of Christians, uh, you've heard this all your life. You've heard the idea of being in Adam and in Christ. You've heard about being dead to sin, alive to God. You've heard uh, about uh, being made new in Christ and being 
and give new life in Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so many of us, and, and maybe this is true for you, and, and maybe you would admit this is true for you in a little bit, uh, a little area of your life. Maybe it's true in a big area of your life. Uh, I think all of us can agree this is true for us in some way, shape, or form. But I think for the majority of Christians, uh, even though we have heard this stuff, we believe this stuff, and we uh, you know, rejoice at this truth, for a lot of us, there's no evidence that there has been this transformation that we have read about in Romans 6. For a lot of us, there's no evidence that we have passed from death to life. And again, I don't say that as uh, from a judgmental point of view. I don't say that as someone who observes people and says, well, I don't see that there's evidence in them. Even though the Bible does say that our faith is or isn't expressed by what we do and how we live, I, I don't say that there isn't any evidence based on my observation of you or my observation of people. I, I say that from a personal place of confession and honesty. And I think if we're all being honest and if we're all just getting it out in the, in the open, a lot of us would admit that there is not evidence in our lives that we have experienced what Romans 6 says we can experience and should experience. I mean, when Romans 6 verse 11 says, likewise, you also, after just saying, this is what happened to Jesus and this is what it means for you. When that statement comes out of Paul's mouth and into our ears from the Holy Spirit, that's a big statement, isn't it? That Christ died and has died, will die no more and he lives eternally and in his resurrection power, we can live as well. That's a big statement to be said about us. The truth of it is, the reality of it is, a lot of us profess to be saved and, and nothing can take that away from us. No one can take that away from us and God accepts us as we are. A lot of us profess salvation. A lot of us profess that we're alive in Christ, but we are still living in Adam, if we're being honest. And maybe you don't live in Adam in every area of your life, but you still live in Adam in some areas and that means that's too many areas, right? Uh, we could draw tons of point of contrast here. A lot of people are saved, but still in sin. A lot of people are professing believers, but not possessing what it means to be a believer. And that causes a lot of conflict. That causes a lot of confusion, a lot of questions in the church. And a lot of people ask me questions like, you know, well, how, how can you be saved and still do that stuff? Or is it okay if I still, and, and, and it just kind of leaves us in a place of just unrest and a place of never reaching our potential in Christ. And, and, and again, maybe not in every area, but in some areas, in a lot of areas. I, I think the reason why Romans 6 is rarely taught, and, and I'm not taking jabs at anybody, I'm talking about myself. The reason why these passages are rarely taught is because they're so convicting. And it's easier for us to talk about salvation as a finish line than it is a starting point. Uh, which Romans 6 makes it clear that salvation is not the end. Salvation is the beginning. It's the launching point of something incredible. Uh, and, and I don't think you can read Romans 5, what it means to be in Christ. And I, I don't think you can read Romans 6, uh, what it means to be alive in him, made new in him. Uh, I don't think you can ignore the Holy Spirit's word on what he wants to do in us and what he wants to make possible in us. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the dichotomy between access and activation. And, and again, Romans 5 and 6 makes it clear what we have access to. Uh, Romans 5 begins by saying we have access into God's grace. And the last two chapters have been all about what we have access to. But by all means, we don't just have access to it. We can activate it and realize it. And that's the goal. That's the standard that we are held accountable to. And, and, and last week we heard Paul repeat himself and we read it again. Paul repeats himself 
uh, several times from Romans, 5, uh, Romans 6, 5 through 11. He just says the same thing again and again and again so that we might would get it in our minds that we have died to sin. We're alive in Christ. We've been raised with Christ. So we have been made new like Christ. And what does that mean in a practical Realist, real life way, he says in verses 11, 12, 11, 12, and 13, he tells us what it means that we would, uh, again, being alive to God, that we begin to see change and see a difference in our lives. Now, last week we ended with some questions like these Are we letting sin reign in us? Are we still letting sin reign in us, even though we have no excuse, even though we still make excuses, but are we still letting sin reign in us? And if we, hopefully you spent some time last week asking yourself, am I letting sin reign? And for a lot of us, it probably didn't take too long to considering those questions for us to come up with an answer that yes, we are still letting sin reign in some way, shape or form. Are we still yielding to Adam? Of course we are, of course we are. Should we? No, but do we? Yes. But that big question, does our life reflect a life in sin or a life under grace? So which reality does your life reflect? Now, maybe it's a mixed bag. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but is that really how it should be? Should our lives not reflect under grace? Of course they should. Now, I believe that there's so much that need, there's so much help that we can receive from this that I think there's more to unpack from this. So I wanted to begin our time together by, by retreading these few verses and getting a little bit more because I felt like there was more on the table uh, from last week. So we left off with these questions and I hope that you considered seriously what is true about them. And we've heard once again, Romans 6 uh, from 5 to 14, uh, we've heard what is possible for us. And, and again, he said in verse five, for if we have been united together, so if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, if we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we have been buried in our old, raised up in new. If we have died with Christ, we are made new and have life in him. And verse 14 ends with that amazing statement. For sin shall, have, shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, you are under grace. So there's a promise to claim here. Now, let me say this out loud before I get you to repeat this thing with me. Just because you repeat a verse out loud, or just because you pray a prayer out loud, or just because you repeat something a preacher says you should repeat, even though it must be decent, it must be halfway good if he wants you to repeat it. Even it, just because you say things doesn't mean it makes it happen, right? This isn't magic. This isn't, you know, conjuring. And y'all know that, but I just want to make sure that we all kind of understand that just because we sit in church and read something or confess something or say something, it doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's personal. Uh, we are desperately at the mercy of the Holy Spirit to make this personal, but also we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision that we want what God has on the table for us. That's a choice that we have to make. And of course, God helps us make that choice. We're not on our own. We'll talk about that tonight even more. But here is what is available to us as Christians in Christ, made new, made alive. This promise. Sin is not my master. I am dead to sin and alive to God. That's the promise that you can claim tonight. That is what is available to you. And I know so bad, I know how desperately you all want that to be true for you. Because every one of us has some way, shape or form where sin is your master. Where something from the old nature, something from this sinful nature, something pulls you under and you wish so badly it would not. 
Romans 6.14 says that sin is not your master because you are under grace. Isn't it true? That's what the verse says. You're no longer under sin. So I want us to say this out loud. I want us to say this and I hope you write this down and I hope you repeat this in your study over the next couple of days. And, and here's the thing. You're going to come up to the precipice of sin. You're going to come up. Let's go back to the, the, the last one. No, it's fine. Um, we're going to come up to the precipice of sin. And you're going to hear this in your head, not my voice, but hopefully the Holy Spirit's voice from Romans 6.14. You're going to come up to the precipice of decisions that you make, things that you think about. You're, you're going to come up to the precipice of sin, and you may still go ahead and do the thing that you shouldn't do. Think the thing you shouldn't think. Go through the process of things you shouldn't go through. That's probably going to happen. I, again, I'm not hoping it for you, but I'm just assuming that we're going to be humans, and we're going to probably make mistakes, and we're going to sin. You're going to probably come up to the edge of sin. You're going to still do what you shouldn't do. But this is going to be in your head. And a day later, it's going to be in your head. And the idea of it is, if we begin to claim this power, now it's more than just saying this statement and saying this verse, but I believe that God's going to introduce us to something tonight. So can we say this together? Sin is not my master. I am dead to sin and alive to God. You think that can give us some help? I think it can help you in the next uh, not just next day or two. I think it can help you in, in your life. Now, there's a little bit of a process I want to take us through. Uh, I want to show you three things that, from, that come from this text that I think can help you realize this promise even more, uh, even more practical, make this even more realistic and more practical. Look at verse 11. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. That word reckons, reckon means, we talked last week, write it down and make it happen. As in, I'm going to write it down until it's, re, it, until it's true. Now, remember in school, I, I never had to do this, not because I was perfect, just because I think it was kind of out of, out of habit. But always, I've seen this on TV before, and maybe somebody here had to do it, where you had to go to the chalkboard and write something again and again and again because you did something you shouldn't do, and they made you go and write it. You know, there's that uh, meme on, you know, that gets put on uh, social media of the, of the cartoon character writing, I will not, I will not. Now, maybe you had to do that. I hope you didn't, but this isn't the equivalent of that, but it's close to it. Reckon means to say it out loud until it happens. So the first thing I want us to do is declare, declare that I am dead to sin and alive to God. And again, you are not making this happen. God has made this happen. This is not positive thinking. This is God has done something that is true for you if you put faith in Jesus, right? That's what verse 11 says. Reckon yourself alive to God, dead to sin because of Jesus. So this is not you saying, I'm going to make this happen. No, this is God saying, I've made it happen. Do you want it? So this week and, and every single day, this is important to do. Declare, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Think you can do that? I think so. Now, verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. I mean, is it that easy? Do not let? Well, if you've declared I'm alive to God and dead to sin, if you have declared by faith in Christ and the one who's made it possible, then you have the ability to decide, to decide I will not let sin rule me. I will not. Not because you have the power or you have the ability, but because what does verse 11 say? God has done something and made you alive and you are dead to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And I love that Paul puts the word mortal in there because obviously he didn't need to because body is body. But he's trying to say, I know there's somebody that's gonna say, 
well, I'm just a flat, I'm just a human, I'm going to make mistakes. I know there's somebody that's going to say, well, that's how I've always been. That's how it's going to be until I'm in heaven. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not an excuse anymore. I know how you've been all your life. Everybody's been, we're all, we're all just, a, you know, a couple different shades of the same thing. We've all got the same sin. So nobody is unique in that sin, right? We're all sinners and we all just sin a little bit differently, but we've all got the excuse. Paul says, but we're not going to use that excuse anymore. I will not let sin rule me. We declare, we decide. In verse 13, do not present your members or your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So declare, I'm, a, I'm alive to God, I'm dead to sin. Decide, I will not let sin rule me and devote, devote yourself. I, I present my body to God. See, this is what makes the declaration the real thing. Because you can declare it on Sunday and you can decide it at the altar on Sunday. But if you don't devote yourself on Monday, you're back to square one, aren't you? Now we started this message off a little strong, I know, because usually this is how we end, but I wanted to kind of get this out of the way because I want us to really get on edge about how can this be possible for us? Not just repeating this stuff out loud, declare, decide to vote, but I want us to lean into God's word. You ever been so anxious to see something that you get real close and maybe you're looking down from something or you're, or you're looking, trying to look up and look around? I hope this draws us in to, to God's word that we might would just pray. And, and, and right now in your own you know, personal space, pray that God would make this something that you feel like it's possible. Now, I know it's possible. The Bible says it's possible. God says it's possible, but there's something in you that doubts it. There's something in you that says, that's not gonna happen for me. But I hope it draws you in to looking over the word and saying, but I wanna know if it's actually something that could happen for me. So you've declared it, you've decided it, and you're gonna devote yourself to God. We're dead to sin, alive to God. Sin is not gonna rule us. We're gonna devote our bodies to God. Now, all of this is possible by God's grace. What does verse 14 say? You're no longer under sin. You're not dominion, uh, sin will not have dominion over you. You are under grace. All this is possible by God's grace. In Christ, you are no longer condemned by the law and you're no longer controlled by sin. Now, if this was not true, then it's impossible. If God had not made this possible, then we, we could declare it all we want and we're just gonna fool ourselves. And if someone's not in Christ and they try to make themselves better by law or by religion, we'll talk about that in a minute, you're not gonna get any better. That's why people come and they try and they go and they never get any better because they never put their faith in Jesus and they never really get what he has available to them. All of this is possible by God's grace. So in Christ, you are no longer condemned because if you were still condemned, then you don't even get close. But God's took the punishment for your sin and he's took the power of your sin away. Now, I know, I know there's people that say and there's people that teach and there's maybe Christian denominations that kind of say, well, I don't know if that's really that big of a deal. You know, we're just, we're, you know, one day we'll get better. One day in heaven, all the sin will be gone. But you know what? You're okay. And grace, isn't that the purpose of grace to kind of let you just kind of get by? Let me kind of put it this way for you, as simple as I can. Sin doesn't control where you go when you die. So sin does not have to control what you do while you live. That's pretty rational thinking, isn't it? 
Sin does not control where I go when I die. So why should sin control what I do while I live? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yet, for a lot of Christians, of course sin has no power over their death, but it still has power over their life. And isn't the whole purpose of eternal life to make us like Jesus? So why would it give us promise of heaven, but not any difference on earth? If you're a Christian, the passage that accumulates uh, that culminates with Romans 6.14 is either very comforting or very convicting. Probably a little bit of both. We stand forgiven and freed in Christ. The question is, are you walking in this forgiveness and in this freedom? Are you? Are you walking in that forgiveness and that freedom? The way to reveal this is to, answer, is to ask yourself another question. Do you make excuses for yourself? Or do you take the escape that God has given you and the ability that God has given you? Do you declare, decide, and devote each day in the face of the same temptations that surround you day in and day out, attempting to stumble you? Or do you fail to repeat those steps again and again? Now, what if we reduced every decision we make and every thought that we have to this transaction of, am I going to devote myself to God or am I going to linger in sin? Am I going to take the way of Adam or am I going to take the way of Jesus? What if we reduced it all down to that simple transaction? What did he say back in verse 13? Or, or Don't yield your bodies or present your bodies. Yield yourself to God. Yield yourself to what is new, not what is old, to the spirit, not the flesh. Now, over in Galatians, uh, I'd love for you to turn over there with me if you would. Over in Galatians, Paul is going to make this so practical that we can't squirm our way out of it. And here's what I mean. In this passage in Romans, Paul has been very vague. He's talked about being alive and being dead. He's talked about doing the right thing and sinning. He's not been really descriptive about what it means to do wrong and what it means to do right. He's not been naming sins is my point. Right? I mean, when he's talked about living to God and not being, you know, and, and being in sin, he's not really, he's convicting us, but he's not saying, for example. Now, he chose to do what he did in Romans, but thankfully he wrote Galatians as well. And in Galatians, he rolls his sleeves up and he says, okay, just in case y'all don't know what I'm talking about, let me help you understand what it means to present your body to sin or present your body to God. And let me help you understand what it means to be in Adam or be in Christ. And again, I didn't write this. So if I did, I don't know if I would have been as bold as Paul because he does not pull any punches. So in Galatians, in Galatians 5, Paul is going to give us the contrast between the life after the flesh, the life in sin versus the life after the spirit, the life in Christ. Now, Verse 19 through 21, you've heard all this, and I'm not going to preach on every single bullet point, don't worry, but you've heard these things. Now, Paul gives a, a laundry list of what it means to be in the flesh. Now, the fun thing here, not really fun, I don't know why I said that, but the first two things he mentions are one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word porneia, which means immorality. It means things that you think or things that you do. He breaks it in the, in the King James and New King James, it breaks it down to adultery and fornication, which again, one means marital infidelity, the other means uh, any kind of infidelity, whether it's uh, in the flesh or in the mind. Again, one Greek word, it's the Greek word that we get the word porn from, so I don't have to really go into detail about that, but it's sexual immorality. He says the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. Well, <laughs> you think, well, 
I'm not, I don't do one, two, three, but uh, wow, hatred's in there. Contentions, and that means if you just are a contentious person. Now, none of y'all are contentious, but there are those people out there. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, and, and literally in the Greek, it says it, it, it's fits of temperament. Now, none of, y'all have, none of y'all have a temper, I'm sure, but somebody does. And there it is. Selfish ambitions. And again, I mean, we read things like adultery and we read things like sorcery. And then we hear things like selfish ambitions. And we would think, well, hey, aren't, they, aren't these kind of different? Aren't one, isn't one of these worse than the other? Paul says, not in my book, not in the book. Uh, heresies. Again, you think heresies worse than selfishness. Not really. It all comes from the same sin, that's the issue. Verse 21, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. I mean, isn't that, isn't that crazy? Verse 21, I, I, love, I love that Paul doesn't like, he, he doesn't start out with these are the physical sins and these are the mental sins because wouldn't you think the physical sins are worse than the mental sins? But didn't Jesus say, you've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, you shall not think about it. And didn't Jesus say that it's the same thing because it's from the same sin. So I think it's incredible that Paul says jealousy and murdering in the same breath because both come from that same sin, that same nature that wants to tear us down and keep us from God. Jealousy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And I've told you beforehand, just as I've told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he, he says, these are the works of the flesh. Now, again, in Romans, Paul's vague. In Galatians, he's very specific. And if you are curious what it means to live in, this, and live in sin or yield to sin, I think we've got a pretty good list of what that looks like, don't we? Verse 21, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So there we have what it means to live a life in the Spirit, what it means to live a life under grace, what it means to live a life like Christ, what it means to be empowered by Jesus. And if you look at the list of uh, the fruits of the Spirit and you don't see those fruits in you, Somewhere along the line, you're not devoting or you're not deciding or you're not declaring. Somewhere along the line, sin is still your master, isn't it? Again, I hope this makes us lean in a little bit. Because the very same Paul that says this is wrong and this is right is the same Paul that said you can find new life. You can be free from sin. So if you find yourself more in the 19 through 21 category than you do the 22 and 23 category, that's not saying there isn't hope for you. That's saying that you are a prime candidate to take a step out of death and into life. Now, you've probably noticed, you can flip back to Romans, you probably noticed there in Galatians and again in Romans 6, 14, we have this mention of law. Now, what does that got to do? Why, why is Paul saying that we're not under law? Shouldn't he say we're not under sin or we're not under the curse or we're not under Adam? Why does he bring law into it? Because isn't, isn't the law of God good? Isn't the law of God what reveals to us what is good and what is bad? And, and why did he say in Galatians that against such there is no law? As if to say that it's not about law keeping, but, but is that to say that we don't need God's law? Or, or I want us to pay close attention to this because this is very important 
that we don't miss out on how we can be transformed because Paul's making sure that we don't take the wrong route. In verse 15, he, he kind of assumes there's some questions or would be some questions. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. And he acknowledges the fact that when people hear Paul say, or when the Jews heard Paul say, this is not going to be by law. We're not going to accomplish this by law keeping or by religion. People would say, well, how are you going to get anybody to obey the right if you tell them it's not by law? People need rules, Paul. Now, a little bit of our, the next little bit of our talk might reveal why you've never really got the most out of your faith, even though you've wanted to. The reason why Paul emphasizes that we're no longer under the law in the same sentence that he talks about being free from sin and under grace, it's because Christianity was born as a spinoff of the Jewish religion, right? The Jewish religion was established and Christianity came from it. And Christianity has constantly flirted with falling back into religion and falling back into legalism. Religion is about law keeping and commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's plenty of them in the Old Testament. The reason why Paul goes out of his way to say Christianity is is to be set free from that mentality is because that mentality will stunt your growth and will hinder your progress in Christ if you go about trying to follow Jesus through rules and religion. Because if law keeping was enough to save you, Jesus would never have died for you. That should be pretty easy to grab a hold of. But this passage makes it clear. We need the life of Christ in us to access new life. No amount of law keeping or moralism or our own efforts is going to get us there. So Paul's making sure that we don't think, well, I guess I got to find a bunch of rules to keep. Paul says, no, no, no. Yes, there's a, there's a place for being guided and being directed by God's word. But this is not going to be done by religion. We cannot obey our way into a relationship with God because it, it, just the same we can't memorize our way out of sin. So when we talk about no longer being in sin, devoting ourselves to God, the solution is not found in what we can do. It's found in what Christ can do in us and through us. This is not about imitating someone. Remember what was the whole purpose of Romans 4? God has imparted his righteousness to us. He has imputed his righteousness to us. Remember, we were gifted the righteousness of Christ. You don't earn it. And you can't obey your way into it. He, was, he gave you his righteousness. He lives in you and we live through him. So if you think Christianity is about law keeping, if you're leaning on self and not on Jesus, you've reduced Christianity down to another religion and you've emptied it of salvation and of power. That's what makes us self-righteous. So if you look at the Bible as just a list of rules, we're doing it wrong. Paul says, that's not going to produce growth in you. That's not going to produce change in you. It's not saying we don't need the Bible. We need it desperately, but we need the power of Christ in us that allows us and enables us to live according to God's word. Remember, we are not saved by rules. We are saved by a relationship. So the purpose of this is to drive us to Jesus, to drive us into a relationship with Jesus. God is not glorified by law keeping. He desires that we keep step with Jesus, that you have a relationship with Jesus. Rules could not save you and they will not save you. Jesus did and his righteousness alone changes us. Now, a little word about self-righteousness versus Christ's righteousness. Self-righteousness 
gives Jesus lip service, but it constantly promotes itself. So I want you to detect this. I want you to see if this might be in you because this could keep you from getting what God wants to give you. And this will just make you frustrated because you're, you, there's sin, but you're trying, but you're doing it the wrong way. Self-righteousness does not boast in Christ alone. It boasts in denominational things. It boasts in politics. It boasts in accomplishments of the flesh. It boasts in worldly gains. Self-righteousness may give Jesus lip service, but it constantly says, but this is what I've done and this is what I'm gonna do. And this is what makes me better than you. Self-righteousness is so insecure and it's so aware of how hollow its eternal efficiency is and it claws for things to make it look better than somebody else. Don't fall for that trap because that is Satan's tool to keep you spinning your wheels. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are at peace and under grace. You're focused on following Jesus and promoting Jesus and you should be anxious to show the world how Jesus alone has saved you and what he can do for you and through you. So again, this is a religion. Under grace is not about running a race because God has already done the race for you. Jesus has already done the race for you. It's about keeping pace with him. And if you're in step with Jesus, we aren't making excuses for sin. We aren't fooling ourselves with the religion. We're finally beginning to experience the transformation that Paul has been talking about. And he says in verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Under grace does not lead us into more sin. It leads us into obedience and leads us into holiness. And what, it, what Paul has told us in verse 16 is really a repeat of what we read about in verse 12 and 13. Under grace allows us to say no to sin because we have said yes to God. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are followers of Jesus. And we're not just casual followers. What does Paul say in verse 16? We are slaves to Christ. As in we are slavishly depending on Jesus because we believe if we take our eyes off of him for one minute, we're lost. We're done for. We're helpless. Look at verse 17 through 19. But, thank, but God be thanked that, through, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is a choice. God is not making you a slave. You choose to be. So I don't want to be a slave. We see that only through our dependence on Jesus are we going to get anywhere. So that word slave means servant, means bondservant. It means willingly putting yourself under the power of God. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, underline this, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Notice it said there in verse 19 that one thing leads to another. Leads to means to produce from within. So let's get this, let's make this clear as we sum up. The Christian life, Christian righteousness is not filled with tremendous pressure. It's not a burdened life. We've been set free from sin. We are delightfully surrendering to Jesus. We become his servants because we know that in him is life. Here's the idea. 
Paul has told us our life is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Colossians 3 says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. The idea is that we know that in Christ alone is our life found. So the idea is that we are presenting ourselves as slaves to Jesus so that we make sure we're under his shadow and getting all that he has for us. That we are 100% under the fountain of grace, under him and his righteousness. When he says we become slaves to Christ, he's saying we should throw ourselves at his feet, totally dependent on him, all focused on finding our life in him and not putting our weight on any other foundation. Does that describe your devotion to Jesus? Are you so focused on getting all that he has for you that you would call yourself a slave of Christ? If you wanna be free, if you wanna have life, Paul says, this is the way. And we know that this is not about there being pressure on us. Jesus gave us this invitation. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest from that pressure. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me like an ox following his master. Take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and I am lowly and you will find rest for your souls. This is not about you trying to perform on your own. This is about you getting relief from doing it your way. So here's the promise. The pressure isn't on us. There is power within us. Do you want that power? The pressure isn't on us. There's power within us. This is about keeping in step, not keeping rules, keeping in step with, and that's what leads to growth, verse 20 through 22. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. For what fruit did you have then in the things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end everlasting life. I wanna remind you of something back in Galatians. Remember how he says the works of the flesh, but then he says the fruit of the spirit. The point there is you have to work to sin. It's you doing the work. You might like doing the work, but you do the work. It's your works, it's your desire. But when you follow Jesus, when you depend on Jesus, something begins to happen within you. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is not produced. I should have put this on the screen, but I didn't. Let me say, I'm going to say it slow and clear. Fruit is produced in and through, not by. Does that make sense? Fruit is not produced by something. It's produced from within something. So don't you see now why Paul is talking about being slaves of righteousness? Because it's about our connection to the source. Because that connection is what's gonna produce the fruit. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus did a whole message on this in John 15, I'll show you a snippet from. It makes a lot more sense now that we know the details of what, about our sin in our flesh. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Neither can you. Unless you abide in me. This relationship, this slave of God relationship. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it or she is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Don't you see the emphasis here? It's a relationship where we are dependent on God under his grace completely, totally dependent on him. Let me say something that you might turn your head at at first. The issue is not about how obedient you are. It's about how closely following Jesus you are. Because if you follow him, you will obey him. But if you try to obey him on your own, you will excuse yourself in a minute and you will unfollow him. It's about how closely, how dependent, how much you have surrendered to him because that's how we fully come to life in him. That's how his life flows through us. That's how fruit is produced from within us because we are walking with him. Think about how fruit is produced because of the connection from the vine to the branch. Think about how power flows from the power source through the conduit to the light switch or to the light bulb. There's a connection. And if that connection is secure, Paul says in Galatians 6, 5, 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not. That's a confident statement, isn't it? But he's been pretty confident about himself, hasn't he? About what he knows about God. So it all goes back to declare, decide, devote. It goes back to finding your life in him, remaining in him. So let me ask you a few things and let me guide you in a process that I think will keep you surrendering to Jesus and secure your connection. Three things to focus on. Accept your new identity. What have we learned about ourselves? Or what have we learned about what we, who we are in Christ? You are in Christ. You need Jesus and you only find life in Jesus. So since you have been put in Christ, you have to find all of yourself in him and look not to the left or to the right or anywhere or anybody else. You have all that you need in him to please God. You have all that you need in him to overcome sin. So double down on Jesus. He alone has saved you. So embrace that new approach. I'm gonna obey. I'm gonna stay in Christ. I'm gonna keep in step with his spirit. I will not obey sin. I will not give in to sin. I'm gonna live under grace. I'm not gonna rely on my flesh. I'm gonna rely on Jesus. I'm gonna walk in his spirit. I'm gonna stay connected to him because that approach is the only one that works. And you may not think the last one's necessary, but it is. Refuse the old mindset. Not only the old way of sin, not only the old nature, but refuse the old mindset of relating to God by law. It's about keeping in step. Religion tempts you to come back because we think it's easier to keep God away in a corner and check in with him on Sunday, but that is the old way that does not work. We need more than just religion. We need a relationship with Jesus. So when we mess up, and we will mess up, it's not about the law that we broke. It's about the fellowship that we broke. You know why Jesus wept over sinners? Not because they broke his laws, but because they were broken from him. What's the prodigal son story about? The, the prodigal son broke every law, but why was the father heartbroken? Because he lost his son. It wasn't about the laws that he broke. It was about his heart. We need not to try harder but we need to trust more and surrender again, double down on Christ that his spirit might raise us up. That's how you take full advantage of eternal life. That's how you wake up to abundant life. 
22 once again, but having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and to the end eternal or everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are still working to please God, the only thing you're gonna earn is death because you've got too much sin in you to earn anything else. That might hurt some feelings that people think they're okay, but we're not okay. There is too much sin in us. If you think you can work your way to God or please God by what you do, the only thing you're gonna earn, the only wage you're gonna earn is death. The good news is it's not about earning or working. It's about receiving and unwrapping a surrendering and relying on God's gift of salvation found only in Jesus. So unwrap the gift accept it and embrace it and refuse to settle for anything less than the gift of Christ's righteousness. See to it that you abide in him and keep in step with him. That's how we make the most of our Christian life. And let me just say, it takes more than just a message. It takes more than just a day to get this right. But the good news is God's already did the hard part. God's already did the work. You just have to accept and embrace and unwrap the gift and and live a life empowered by the gift of Christ's righteousness. He's done all the work. He's just waiting for you to accept it and embrace it, to declare, decide, and devote. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing word. Your word is so good and it, we need, we could spend hours and hours just in one of these passages. God, it's so good and you, you want us to get free. You want us to find life. You want us to be full of your power. Lord, I, I pray that we would admit today that there's, a, there's some stuff in us that needs to go. There's some flesh, there's some sin that's in us. And a lot of us, we've tried to pacify ourselves by doing some religious things and we've tried to feel better about it, but we haven't got any better. And that's the issue. Lord, would you bring us into that place of dependence on Christ, that place of a growing relationship with Jesus? Would you show us that it takes slavish total devotion to God, being under his grace and in his righteousness. That's how we see change. You've already done the work, Lord, that we might would have the faith to put all of our trust in you, that we might see your life flow through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.